Chapter 11, The Kingdom is Now. In the last several chapters, we have examined Dave Hunt's view of the kingdom of God. Hunt teaches that the kingdom is an internal and spiritual reality. The present kingdom of God is not of the world. Instead, the kingdom is heaven. We will enter the kingdom only when we die. Though Hunt admits that the kingdom is already in our hearts in some way, we have already anticipated much of what we will say in this chapter. Still, we need to present our position systematically and defend it more positively than we have done in earlier chapters. The kingdom is one of the most complex concepts in all of Scripture. One of the reasons for this is that Jesus used it as the comprehensive umbrella doctrine that explained his entire work of redemption. Every teaching of the New Testament relates in a more or less direct way to the kingdom. Another reason is that much of Old Testament prophecy was concerned with the coming of the Messianic kingdom. Because of the complexity of this doctrine, we have not attempted to be comprehensive. Rather, we have tried to highlight some of the main features of the biblical doctrine of the kingdom of God, focusing mainly on the New Testament. In order to clarify what we will say below, we will first summarize our view. The kingdom is the rule of God through the God-man Jesus Christ. It was established when Jesus came to conquer his enemies and to bring order out of chaos of sin. After conquering his enemies, the king was seated on his throne to rule over all things. In principle, Christ's rule is already universal. He graciously rules over everything, and he rules everywhere. He rules all men and all human associations. Those who submit to him enter into the blessedness of the kingdom, enjoying the power and privileges of being his subjects and committing themselves to righteous living. Christ advances the kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel and the working of his spirit, extending his mercy and bringing more and more men and nations under the protection and blessing of his rule. He also advances his rule by ordering the events of history for the benefit of his church, including the conversion or destruction of his enemies. Christ's ultimate purpose is to glorify, exalt, and vindicate the Father. His more immediate purpose is to save his people and to establish justice and peace throughout the earth. Our view of the kingdom, oddly enough, has been well summarized by the dispensationalist theologian Herman Hoyt of Grace Theological Seminary. He claims that the kingdom is spiritual in the sense that it is governed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit's control of individuals will be manifested in individual ethical conduct, the healing of social relations, political transformation, physical and ecological improvement, and religious purity. The major differences between Hoyt's position and ours are 1. the question of timing, and 2. whether or not Christ will be physically present during the millennium. We believe that these things will develop gradually throughout the present age while Hoyt believes that they will occur only after Christ returns and establishes his throne in Jerusalem. The Conquering King The Greek word for kingdom, basilia, has a different primary meaning from the English word kingdom. The Greek word basically means dominion, rule, or kingship, while our English word refers to a realm. The Greek refers to the authority of a king, not the land or subjects that a king rules. But God is not a figurehead king who retains his royal title without actually ruling. In Christ, God actually exercises his royal authority and power. In fact, Paul says that the kingdom consists in power, 1 Corinthians 4.20. Moreover, throughout the Gospels, Jesus talks about entering the kingdom, Matthew 7.21, John 3.5, etc., and feasting in the kingdom, Matthew 8.11, Luke 13.29 
and promises that he will someday sit at his table with his disciples in the kingdom. Matthew 26:29, Mark 14:25, Luke 22:16 through 18. This usage suggests the idea of realm or sphere of power or authority. Thus, while the basic meaning of the word is rule, the full doctrine of the kingdom has a wider reference. God's rule implies that there are people and a realm to be ruled. If the kingdom is God's reign, how can we talk about the kingdom's coming? How can we talk about the establishment of God's rule? How can we talk of its growth? Hasn't God always ruled everything? Of course, the Bible teaches that God has eternal and comprehensive dominion, Daniel 4.34. But scripture also speaks about the kingdom's coming and growing and increasing. So we must distinguish between the eternal rule of God and the rule of Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. Let us return to a parallel argument that we have used before. When a Christian is saved, he receives eternal life. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, John 3.36. Yet he also says that he is prepared to die. But if he is going to die, how can he say that he has received eternal life? The answer is simple. We are not talking about an either-or condition. Salvation is a both-and condition, present and future. Christians have received eternal life in principle. They keep it throughout their lives, and then they receive it at the resurrection of the dead. All three statements are true. Therefore, our salvation has three stages, definitive, progressive, and final. So does the kingdom of God in its earthly manifestations, sin and deliverance. In order to understand how Christ can be said to be establishing God's rule, we must look back to the first chapters of Genesis. Man was created to be God's servant, to rule over the earth, and to glorify his Lord in doing so. Man was not to be God's equal, but to be God's representative ruler over the earth. Adam was not to be the king, but the king's representative. In succumbing to the temptation of the serpent, however, Adam attempted to be his own god, and instead came under the dominion of Satan. After the fall of Adam and Eve, God promised to send a deliverer to defeat Satan and to destroy his rule over men, Genesis 3.15. Throughout the Old Testament, God raised up deliverers to save his people and to secure the blessings of life under God's rule. All of these, however, failed to bring lasting peace and order. In the incarnation of the Son, the King himself comes into the world to conquer the enemy once and for all. Jesus came as the greater Joshua, who makes war against God's enemies, and as the greater Son of David, who rules the world in righteousness. It is important to note the God-centeredness of Jesus' mission. He didn't come merely to save men from eternal death and punishment, as important as that is. He came to establish the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. He came to reassert God's rule. The kingdom belongs to the Father. Thine is the kingdom. Matthew 6.13, compare Matthew 13.43. As writer Bose puts it, In the coming of the kingdom, God first and foremost reveals himself as the creator and king who does not abandon the world to perdition, but is his people's savior and promiser. Hence, the ultimate goal of Christ's rule is God's glory and good pleasure. The failure of the Old Testament kings had led Israel to doubt whether God truly ruled. The nations had seen Israel's sinfulness and oppression, and they blasphemed God. Isaiah 52.5, Romans 2.24 How could God really be king if his people were consistently oppressed and enslaved? Christ delivered his people so that God's honor would be vindicated and his name glorified, so that the ends of the earth would know that the Lord is God indeed. 
Of course, Christ's deliverance and his rule were different from what many Israelites had expected. Rather than throwing off the chains of Rome, Christ broke the chains of sin and death. He conquered the enemy behind the enemy. In contrast to the conquest of the Old Testament judges and kings, Jesus' conquest was not over external enemies, but over the invisible accuser and oppressor of men. In extending his kingdom, he does not conquer enemies by the sword of iron, but by the sword that comes out of his mouth, Revelation 19. Also, Christ did not deliver Israel only. In fact, he spent a lot of time telling Israel that the old covenant people would be judged, and he delivered men and women from every nation and tribe and tongue. Finally, Christ became king through his self-sacrifice on the cross. He performed his visible redemptive work, not as the majestic son of David, but as the suffering servant. Likewise, his kingdom grows not by an exercise of brute force, but by the selfless service of his people. Christ's Conquest of Satan Christ's miracles were, among other things, signs of his conquest of Satan and his establishment of the rule of God. Jesus drove out demons by the Spirit of God as a sign that the kingdom of God has come upon you, Matthew 12:28-29. Even the demons recognized why Jesus had come. What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God, Mark 1:24. Jesus bound the strong man so that he could plunder his house, Mark 3:27. Through the cross, Christ disarmed the demonic powers and publicly triumphed over them in his resurrection. Colossians 2.15 One aspect of Christ's triumph over Satan can be discovered by examining the book of Job in the light of the New Testament. In the first two chapters of Job, we find Satan, the accuser, in the heavenly courtroom of God. Compare Zechariah 3.1-2 He is among the angels who report to the king. He has a position of power and authority. In fact, one of Job's complaints throughout the book is that he has no advocate, no one to argue his case before the judge. When Christ came, however, he cast Satan from heaven, Luke 10.18, Revelation 12.7. Thus, instead of having the accusing Satan in heaven, we now have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who argues our case before the Father, 1 John 2.1. Satan no longer has authority to accuse us before God. The reigning king. Having completed his definitive conquest of Satan, Christ was exalted to the right hand of the Father and given the nations as his inheritance. This exaltation fulfills the prophecy of Psalm 2. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Verse 8. Daniel also prophesied that when the Son of Man ascended to the Ancient of Days, he would be given dominion, glory, and rule over all nations. Daniel 7:13-14. The New Testament everywhere teaches the same truth. As a result of his suffering and death, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. Hebrews 2:9. After Jesus humbled himself unto death, the Father exalted him and gave him a name above every name. Philippians 2:8-9. In Ephesians 1.22, Paul states that God has placed all things under his feet. Every part of this phrase deserves emphasis. First, Paul is writing in the past tense. He does not say that God will place all things under Christ's feet. God has placed all things under Christ's feet. When did this happen? The text tells us that it happened when God seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That is, at his ascension. Second, 
Note that all things have been placed under the feet of the ascended Christ. There is nothing in the text to restrict the scope of this word. It means very literally all things, all men, all the forces of creation, all nations and societies, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to the risen Christ. Matthew 28:18 through 20. Christ is Lord of all. Acts 10:36. The head of all authorities and powers. Colossians 2:10. Late in the last century, Princeton theologian A. A. Hodge wrote, "The present mediatorial kingdom of the God-Man is absolutely universal, embracing the whole universe and every department of it." Abraham Kuyper, Jr., the son and namesake of the great Dutch theologian and statesman, wrote, From that moment on, that Christ has been seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father and has poured out the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of heaven has been founded upon earth. Christ rules everywhere over everything, and he rules now. Christ rules over all things in order to gather the nations into his one church. Paul wrote to the Ephesians that Christ rules all things for the church, Ephesians 1.22. As the Scottish theologian of the last century, William Symington, wrote, The possession of universal power must, on a moment's reflection, appear to be intimately connected with the interest of the church. Power beyond the church is essential to the existence, increase, and welfare of the church itself. That the members of his mystical body may be complete in him, he must have dominion over all principalities and powers, the overthrow of the church's foes, the fulfillment of the church's prospects, and the final victory of every member over death and the grave, suppose him to rule with uncontrollable sway in the midst of his enemies. It is Christ who opens the doors for the gospel in remote regions of the world. Acts 16, 6-10, Revelation 3, 8. It is Christ operating by his Spirit who ensures that the preaching of the gospel will be effective. It is Christ who raises and destroys nations, all for the benefit of his people. It is Christ the King who, having inherited the nations, now causes his reign to be acknowledged from one end of the earth to the other. A clear example of Christ's rule over the nations for his church was the destruction of the Jewish state that persecuted the early church. Matthew 24, Luke 21, compare Acts 6, 8 through 15. In destroying Israel, Christ transferred the blessings of the kingdom from Israel to a new people, the church. This is an important theme in the Gospels. After healing the centurion's servant, for example, Jesus noted that the centurion's faith was greater than any he had found in Israel. He added that the sons of the kingdom would be cast out to make room for Gentiles to eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. Matthew 8, 10-12. The parable of the vineyard makes the same point. Jesus concludes by telling the chief priest and elders that the kingdom will be taken from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Matthew 21:43. In the very next chapter, Jesus tells the parable of the wedding feast. In the context, the first group invited to the kingdom refers to the Jews. When they refuse to come to the feast, the king sends his slaves into the highways and byways, inviting the rejected Gentiles to feast with him. Matthew 22, 1-14. Christ's universal dominion over all things was definitively established when Jesus entered heaven and received his inheritance, Psalm 2, 6, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. But it must also be progressively acknowledged and manifested. Peter quoted Psalm 110, 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, during his Pentecost sermon, and applied it to Jesus, Acts 2, 34. 
This verse implies that Christ's enemies have not yet been fully conquered. Christ will reign until his enemies have been conquered. Paul implies the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15.25, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Again, we find here the idea that Christ's reign advances and increases, compare Isaiah 9.7. How do we reconcile these passages with Ephesians 1, which teaches that Christ already reigns over everything? We should not ignore either emphasis because both are found in Scripture. Instead, we should emphasize both equally. Christ is already reigning over all things, but his reign is not yet fully acknowledged. A helpful parallel is found in the doctrine of sanctification. Paul says that we have died to sin at baptism, Romans 6, 1-8, but we still have to struggle against sin, Romans 7. The flesh has been crucified, but we must daily crucify the flesh. This is not a contradiction. Rather, each of these truths sets the proper context for the other. We fight against sin daily in the knowledge that sin has been crucified, Romans 6, 11-12. We are able to fight against sin with confidence because sin has been crucified. Similarly, Christ extends his rule throughout the earth because he already reigns from heaven. Christ's definitive, progressive, and final reign parallels that of the Father. The Father has ruled with the Son and Spirit from all eternity. The Father does as he pleases with the armies of the heaven and with the peoples of the earth, Daniel 4.34-35. He forms light and creates darkness. He brings prosperity and creates disaster, Isaiah 45, 5-7. Yet it is clear that Satan continues to operate on earth, Job 1-2. Thus, though the Father has ruled since creation, He also progressively vanquishes the forces of darkness. On the last day, the Son will deliver the kingdom to the Father, so that he may be all in all, 1 Corinthians 15.28, from heaven to earth. It may be helpful at this point to discuss the relationship of the kingdom to heaven. It is true that Jesus and the New Testament writers sometimes use the word kingdom to refer to the eternal state in heaven. This is especially apparent in those passages where Jesus talks about the kingdom as an inheritance, Matthew 25:34, or a reward, Matthew 21-16. In many passages, Paul warns that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom, implying that it is a future reality, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10, Galatians 5, 21, Ephesians 5, 5. In 2 Timothy 4:18, Paul refers to Christ's heavenly kingdom, Matthew uses the phrase, kingdom of heaven, in the same way that the other evangelists use the phrase, kingdom of God. Nevertheless, this usage of kingdom should not lead us to the conclusion that the kingdom is exclusively in heaven, or that the kingdom has no impact on the history of the earth. Just as the king becomes incarnate on earth and enters history, so also his kingdom enters the world of human affairs. In Christ and by his work, heaven comes to earth. As Voss says, the kingdom of God becomes incarnate. John Bright agrees, in the person and work of Jesus, the kingdom of God has intruded into the world. This does not mean that Christ's rule is earthly or fleshly like the kingdoms of the world. Its realm is not limited to earth, but includes heaven as well. It is everlasting. It is ruled on different principles and is established by different methods than earthly kingdoms. It is spiritual in the full biblical sense, namely that Christ rules through the Holy Spirit. Nor does it mean that earth will ever perfectly reflect the reality of heaven, but the kingdom operates on earth, just as Christ lived on earth and still works by his spirit. 
and we are to strive and pray to make earth reflect and image heaven. The very nature of Christianity implies that the rule of Christ affects earthly history. Biblical Christianity has always been historical. The early creeds of the church are simply recitals of the history of Christ's birth, death, and resurrection. These all occurred on earth, in history. It would be more than strange if the king had come to earth, died on earth, and risen again in a spiritual body so that he could establish a kingdom that has nothing to do with earth. Why did Christ do this on earth? Why did he become incarnate and enter human history? The answer of scripture is that he came to redeem what was fallen. He came into the world to redeem the world. He came into the world to establish his redemptive reign among men on earth. Moreover, several passages explicitly claim that Christ exercises dominion on earth. Christ claimed that he had been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18-20 Paul wrote to the Colossians that Christ, the creator of all things, had come to earth to restore all things. Colossians 1, 16 Christ's rule is as extensive as creation itself. People, real historical people, enter the kingdom. Colossians 1, 13 when Jesus gave Peter the keys of the kingdom, he told him that they were for the binding and loosening of things both in heaven and on earth. Matthew 16:19. The signs of the coming of the kingdom in Jesus' ministry, healing, and exorcism had real effects on real people. Christ exhorted his followers to pursue the righteousness of the kingdom. Matthew 6:33. A righteousness manifested visibly and historically in acts of charity and justice. Though the operation of the kingdom is spiritual, and though our king sits on a heavenly throne, his rule nevertheless has visible and historical effects. Kingdom blessing and kingdom righteousness. As we have seen, Christ rules over all things in heaven and on earth. The kingdom of the world has already become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he now reigns and will reign eternally. But the Bible usually uses the word kingdom in a more restricted sense to connote the blessings, privileges, and responsibilities that come to those who submit willingly to the rule of Christ. Because Jesus has conquered the enemies of his people, the present New Testament period of history is an age of salvation. The world has been delivered from its enslavement to Satan and to sin. Those who submit to the king in faith and obedience enjoy the blessings of the kingdom. The chief blessing of the kingdom is forgiveness of sins, Matthew 18.23. We are cleansed by the blood of Christ, which is effective for cleansing the conscience. Thus, we can draw near to God, know him, and enjoy continual fellowship with him in a way that Old Testament believers could not. One of the central symbols of fellowship with God throughout Scripture is the feast. In keeping with this, Jesus describes the blessings of the kingdom as sitting at his table, Matthew 8:11, Luke 13:29. The Lord's Supper is a foretaste of the joy and fellowship of the final wedding feast that Christ's people will enjoy at the end of the age, Matthew 26:29, Mark 14:25, Luke 22:16 through 18. Those who enter the kingdom participate in the power of the resurrected Christ, Ephesians 1, 18-19. Power is one of the main emphases in the New Testament's teaching about the kingdom. This power is brought to us by the Spirit of the risen Christ. When he entered heaven, Christ received the Spirit and poured it out on his people, Acts 2:33. The Spirit brings to the church the power and blessing of the kingdom. Reverend Raymond Zorn has written, 
Christ had ascended to heaven to be from henceforth seated at the right hand of the Father until his reign was consummated in the fulfillment of every purpose of his rule, but his work on earth would be continued by the Spirit, coming to expression in the church and going progressively forward until the very atmosphere of the eternal state would be created, maintained, and pervaded by the supernatural power of the Spirit. The power of God's kingdom, therefore, continues to be active in the world, centered in the exalted reign of Christ, but furthered by his Spirit who makes the church the locus of his operation. Equipped with this spiritual kingdom power, we are able to obey the commands of the King. In Christ, we have the power to resist the devil and his temptations. The law is written on our hearts, Hebrews 8, 8-13. And we are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to Christ. Romans 6, 15-23 Thus the subjects of Christ's kingdom have certain responsibilities. His kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. Ultimately, God alone can make us willing and righteous subjects of his kingdom. As Jesus told Nicodemus, We cannot enter the kingdom unless we have been born from above. John 3, 5 but there are other requirements for those who would persevere in the kingdom. Both John and Jesus required repentance of those who would enter the kingdom. The kingdom should be our highest priority and our greatest joy. Matthew 6.33 The king requires total surrender. Luke 9.60-62.18.29 Jesus said that our status in his kingdom depends on our attention to the details of his law. Matthew 5.19 in fact, in some passages, Jesus goes further and says that righteousness is a condition of entrance into the kingdom. Matthew 5, 27, 21. A major part of righteousness that the king requires is humility. Matthew 5, 3, 10, Luke 6, 20. We must humble ourselves as little children to be fit for the kingdom. Matthew 18, 1 through 4, 19, 14, Mark 10, 13 through 16. This humility is shown in our willingness to forgo our own rights and to serve others. The whole world benefits in many ways from the rule of Christ, but the rule of Christ also means condemnation for those who despise his offer of blessing and salvation. Writer Boss notes that the kingdom means judgment because God maintains his royal will in opposition to all who resist his will. Thus, Christ's universal rule over all things is manifested either in blessing or in cursing. The psalmist warned that the enthroned king would rule the nations with a rod of iron and shatter the disobedient like pottery. Psalm 2 9. The punishment of the wicked is more severe than under the Mosaic system. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews 2. 2 through 3. Throughout the book of Acts, the apostles warned people to repent because Christ had been raised and exalted to judge all nations. Acts 2, 32 through 36, 10, 40 through 42, 17, 31. Thus, the age of the kingdom is an age of crisis. When the apostles preached that now is the time of salvation, they were referring to the present age of history, the time between Christ's first and second advents. The reign of the saints. As we have seen, Christ rules the world for the good of the church. But the reverse is also true. Christ rules his church for the good of the world. The church has been given the ministry of the word of life, which calls men to repentance and faith. Romans 10:14-17. In the Lord's Supper, the church distributes the bread of life, which has been given for the life of the world. John 6:32-33. 
The law and the gospel flow from the mountain of the Lord, the church, and bring the nations to the church for justice. Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. Christ rules from his heavenly throne through his spirit to make these instruments effective for the conversion of the nations. Thus, it is through the spirit-filled church proclaiming the gospel that the kingdom of Christ extends throughout the world. The church is Christ's instrument of rule. More than that, the church actually participates in Christ's rule over the nations. The ascension of Christ thus marks a transition in our relationship to God's dominion over the world. Man was created to rule the earth as a subject of the heavenly king, Genesis 1.28. When Adam sinned, he lost dominion. Hunt criticizes dominion theologians for talking about the restoration of man's dominion. It is the task of Christians, so we are told, to take dominion back from Satan as the rightful gods of this world, according to some, to restore planet earth to the beautiful paradise that it once was before Adam and Eve sinned. However, man has lost the dominion that God gave him over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Genesis 1, 26, 28, Psalm 8, 6. To speak of restoring man's dominion is therefore meaningless. The problem is not man's loss of dominion, but his abuse of it. Nor was dominion intended to be exercised by some men over other men, but only by man over creatures under him. He concludes by quoting Matthew twenty twenty-five through 26 where Jesus warns against lording it over others. In some ways, Hunt is simply playing a semantic game with abuse and loss. Of course, what we are talking about is a loss of true and godly dominion. On the other hand, the Bible also says that we have become slaves of sin and of Satan. Doesn't this imply a loss of dominion? Moreover, is it really true that we have dominion over the animals and the earth? Have we really tapped the potentials of the Earth's resources? Have we domesticated bears and lions? While we do continue to exercise some dominion over the Earth, the curse of Genesis 3 implies that the Earth is recalcitrant. The curse on the ground has made dominion more difficult. In principle, the curse has been removed by the resurrection of Christ, but we still have the progressive task of restoring the creation to godly use. Hunt's quotation of Matthew 20, 25-28 is a good reminder of the biblical teaching on leadership, but several things should be noted. First, leadership is a form of dominion. The Christian leads by service, not by domination. This is accurate and needs to be said, but Jesus is talking about leadership. That's one of the things that we mean by dominion. We don't mean domination. Christians are meant to rule, to be leaders, but we are to lead by service, not by domination. Second, the implication is that dominion theologians teach that some men should dominate others. In one sense, nothing could be further from the truth. We are adamantly opposed to totalitarianism. We do not believe that the state is our Lord and Savior. On the other hand, we recognize that God providentially establishes some people in places of authority and others in places of submission. When Christians are in places of authority, they should apply the word of God, even if those under them dislike it. For example, the Christian parent should apply the Bible in disciplining his children. Is it domination to require a child to be obedient? We don't think so. We think that disciplining children according to biblical principles is what God requires, and we hope that Hunt would agree. What about the church? Should elders seek to apply the Bible to the worship and activity of the church? What if they discover that something in their practice is unbiblical? Should they change it? What if the congregation objects? 
We're not counseling church leaders to lord it over their congregations. We are not saying that church leaders must make changes rapidly without any consideration of the congregation's feelings and interests. But the Bible talks about elders ruling in the church. 1 Timothy 5.17 This implies we think that it is sometimes necessary for the good of the church to implement even unpopular changes. We consider this to be part of proper leadership. So whether we talk about abuse or loss, sin disturbed God's plan for Adam. But Christ, the God-man, has now been given all authority and power and dominion. When we are united with this man by faith, we are restored to dominion and kingship over the earth. We are united with Christ who reigns over all things. We are made kings and priests with him. Hebrews 2, 5-9, Revelation 1, 6 4.10. We are co-heirs with Christ, sharing both in his suffering and his godly glory. Romans 8.17. By enduring suffering, we also share in his reign. 2 Timothy 2.12. God's people, his church, is the instrument by which the blessings of his reign is extended throughout the earth. As A.A. A. Hodge put it, The special agency for the building up of this kingdom is the organized Christian church, with its regular ministry providing for the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. The special work of the Holy Ghost in building up this kingdom is performed in the regeneration and sanctification of individuals through the ministry of the church. This is part of what Jesus meant when he told his disciples, who constituted the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20, that the kingdom would be given to them. As the Father had conferred the kingdom on Christ, so also Christ conferred the kingdom on the disciples, and by extension, on his church. In particular, the church is given the authority to judge, rule, the twelve tribes of Israel, and the related privilege of sitting at the king's table. Luke 22:29 through 30 Moreover, the keys of the kingdom were given to the church. The church is the gateway to the kingdom of heavenly blessing, authority, and privilege. Matthew 16:19. Taken together, these verses suggest that there is a very close connection between the kingdom of Christ and the church. The church, the people of God, possesses the power, blessing, and privileges of the kingdom because the king is present among them and in them by his spirit. Thus, the church and the kingdom refer to the same thing from different angles. The kingdom, with its authority and benefits, is what the church possesses. The church is the covenantal people that possesses the kingdom. Compare Matthew 21:43. We must always, however, maintain the distinction between the church and the kingdom, because the church never exhibits perfect righteousness while on earth. Roderick Campbell summarizes the various ways in which believers reign with Christ. 1. As heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, they possess all things necessary for their highest well-being. Compare Romans 8, 17, 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 22, James 2, 5. 2. They reign or rule in the sense that all things in nature and in history are working together for their good. Compare Romans 5, 17, 8, 28, 1 Peter 3, 13. 3. They rule in the sense that Christ has no other earthly instrumentality or agency for the propagation of his gospel and law, the only method by which true victory and lasting peace can be achieved on earth. Compare Matthew 28, 2 Corinthians 6, 1. 4. By faith in the unlimited resources and powers of Christ, they triumph over the world, the flesh, and the devil. They become more than conquerors over all their deadly foes. Romans 8:37, compare James 4:7, 1 Peter 5:9, 1 John 2:13 through 14, 3:8.
5. They rule or will rule in the sense which is everywhere implied in Scripture that there can be no stable, peaceful, and righteous civil government except as it is administered by Christian men or by rulers elected to office by Christian people. As and when these conditions are fulfilled, the saints will reign on earth in the most literal sense. 6. In the position and dignity, in the truest sense, and in the sight of God, they are higher than the kings and potentates of earth. All have freedom of access at all times to the presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Compare Ephesians 2.6, Hebrews 10.19-22, 1 Peter 2.5.9. 7. As intercessors, they plead with God on behalf of men. By their prayers, they move the arm that controls the winds, the rain, all the potent forces of the physical world, and even the powers of wicked nations and men. Compare Jeremiah 1.10. 18, Matthew 7, 7 through 8, 18, 19, Acts 12, 5, James 5, 14 through 18. In sum, while we are in one sense in submission to the rule of Christ, in another sense we are kings who reign with him. The rule of Christ is extended through the gospel witness of his scripture-filled people. Blessed with the power and righteousness that are central to the kingdom, we submit to him and apply his word to our lives. By service, suffering, witness, and obedience, we participate in the progressive advance of his rule over all people and nations. The Growth of the Kingdom In trying to understand the growth of the kingdom of God, it is important that we keep in mind Jesus' warning that the kingdom does not come perceptibly. It is advanced by the invisible power of the Holy Spirit. Thus, as A. A. Hodge said, the process by which the kingdom grows through its successive stages toward its ultimate completion can, of course, be very inadequately understood by us. Still, we shall attempt to explain, as best we are able, how the kingdom of God grows practically and concretely through time. As we have seen, the kingdom of Christ is comprehensive. He rules over all things in every way. This is already true. Yet the kingdom also grows. We must here recall the distinction that we made between the universal rule of Christ and the blessings that come to those who submit to him. Christ already rules over all men and nations, but not all men and nations acknowledge him. There are still rebels. The kingdom grows when rebels submit to the king's rule. Let us look at several examples of how this operates concretely. Christ already rules over our hearts and minds. This is implied by the fact that Christ rules all things. If he rules everything, he must also rule our hearts and minds. What does it mean for Christ to be king of our hearts? In an objective sense, it means that Christ blesses obedient and faithful thoughts and casts down vain imaginations. By his word, the incarnate word tests the thoughts and motives of our hearts. Hebrews 4, 12-13 This is true of everyone, whether or not he or she recognizes it. Even those whose mind is set on the flesh are under Christ's authority. Unless they repent, they will receive the punishment due their sins. Romans 8, 6 Christ's rule advances when rebels submit their minds and hearts to him. Actually, sinners cannot do this of themselves. Only the Spirit can give a man a spiritual mind. Compare Romans 8, 1-5. When the Spirit unites us to Christ, we receive new life, the life of the resurrected Christ. We are given a new heart, Ezekiel 36:26. This enables us to acknowledge willingly and openly that Christ is Lord, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. When we do this, we are removed from the curses of Christ's rule and enter into the blessings, peace, joy, contentment. 
Paul exhorts us to submit our minds and hearts to Christ's rule. Romans 12, 1-2, 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5. This occurs definitively when we are converted, but there is also a progressive aspect. Each of us individually must become more and more obedient to his rule as we submit ourselves to his commands and in the power of the Spirit put our flesh to death. Romans 8:13, Colossians 3, 5. When Christ returns and we are transformed fully into his image, our minds will be finally purified and made submissive to him. This personal submission to Christ's rule is basic. To that extent, Hunt is correct. The rule of Christ is inner and spiritual. We are also called to preach the good news of the kingdom to those around us. The Spirit uses our witness and service to bring others under the rule of Christ. Thus, the kingdom increases both intensively and extensively. That is, the subjects of the king become more and more submissive and responsive to him, and more and more people submit to the king and his commands. But we cannot stop with individual submission to Christ. We must also submit our families to his rule. We must acknowledge that Christ rules our homes, and we must obey him in our family relationships. All families are already under Christ's rule. Families that rebel against him will be judged unto the third and fourth generations. When a family comes under Christ's gracious rule, they receive his blessing and commit themselves to live by his standards for family life. Wives must submit themselves to their husbands, and children must be obedient to their parents, Ephesians 5:22 through 6, 4. Over time, our families should become more faithful to Christ and more obedient to his commands. In this way, Christ's rule is acknowledged and progressively manifested in our homes. Moreover, as the gospel is preached to all creatures, more and more families will enjoy the blessings of Christ's rule. Christ is still our king when we enter the workplace. He owns all things and has given us whatever we have. We are his stewards. We must use his resources as he directs. Thus, for example, we must avoid debt, Romans 13.8. As employees and employers, we must acknowledge his rule and submit to his commands. Employers are to treat their employees fairly, Ephesians 6.9, and employees are to render good service as to Christ. Ephesians 6, 5-8, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-12. Christ blesses any business or organization that functions in this way. Christ is king over all civil officials and civil governments. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, 1 Timothy 6, 15, Revelation 11, 15, 19, 16. Civil officials must acknowledge the lordship of Christ and obey his rules for civil governments. Psalm 2, 10-12, Romans 13, 1. The blessings of the kingdom, peace, stability, and justice will come to all nations that acknowledge the king and enforce his laws. Richard B. Gaffin, Jr., in writing of the filling of the Spirit, makes a comment that captures well the implications of what we mean by submitting to the rule of Christ. Being filled with the Spirit means marriages that work and are not poisoned by suspicion and bitterness, homes where parents, children, brothers, and sisters really enjoy being with each other, free from jealousy and resentment, and job situations that are not oppressive and depersonalizing, but meaningful and truly rewarding. We would simply add that an orderly and just political order is a further manifestation of the kingdom of Christ and the working of his spirit. It is important to note that none of these institutions is equivalent to the kingdom. Rather, when we speak of the kingdom, our attention is focused on the heavenly throne of the Lamb. The blessings described in this section are the fruit and effect of Christ's gracious rule over his people. Conclusion 
As we have seen, the kingdom refers to Christ's righteous and merciful rule over all things. This includes all men in their associations, families, churches, businesses, and civil governments. Those who willingly submit to his rule by faith receive the blessings of the kingdom, but those who refuse to acknowledge the king are shattered. Thus, the rule of Christ is gradually acknowledged, and its fruit is made visible in the world. By the grace of God, it will triumph over all opposition.